Um, I put the thing together, and I totally forgot that song. <laughs> so. Oh, never mind then. We're good. I didn't do anything wrong. Yay. Yeah, you did forget to put it in. I did forget to put it in, but you, you were steadfast to make sure that... Thank you. Thanks. Alrighty. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 1. And we are going to start with verse 15 today. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, Alright, so today we're actually going to experience something, in my mind, fascinating. And the thing about these verses is, is that they're not like the rest of the verses in Colossians. Um, in fact, a lot of scholars have come to the conclusion that these are, verses are actually a hymn. Um, that this was an early hymn sung about Jesus Christ in the church. And Paul, he takes that hymn and he uses it in Colossians for a further theological point he's going to make down the road. Um, and it's, it's for me, when I read these verses, it's wonderful. I think they are some of the most powerful things about Christ said in the whole of Scripture, uh, these five verses, which says something about their hymns, (laughs) is that they knew how to write hymns back then. Um, And now a few things about the hymn, though. Uh, For one, and we'll get to this a little bit, is that it's very reminiscent of wisdom literature during the time period. And what I mean by that is, is that if you've ever read any of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they talk about wisdom the way that this hymn talks about Jesus a little bit, but they're not the same, and I'll get into that. Also, it's very reminiscent of Jewish um, literature, uh, their art. Uh, so, for example, when we write a poem today, we write, Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, through a many quaint and quivalous volume of forgotten lore, when suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, as of someone gently knocking on my, ta- um, on my chamber door, um, all that. You know how there's a... It rhymes. Each, each line, it rhymes. Uh, and that's from The Raven. And I really like The Raven. <laughs> um, but, but you've got this rhyme scheme. But for the Jewish people, the way that they would compose their poetry was chiastically. And what that means is that instead of rhymes, necessarily, it would be, let's say, five verses. Verses one would coordinate with verse five verse 2 with verse 3, and the main point would be verse 3. Sorry, 2 with verse 4, and then the main one was verse 3. And that's what we have here. The main focus then is actually verse, want to say, 18, because that's right in the middle. And we'll see why it is as we continue forward. Um, So if it doesn't make sense, like, oh, well, it doesn't rhyme at all, so how could it be a hymn? It's because they're writing from their culture. That's how they wrote back then. And we see it all the time in the Old Testament. So, alright, now that I got a few of that technical jargon out of the way, let's continue forward. Verse 15. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the hymn begins by reflecting on the previous verse, which is seen by the word he, which is used at the beginning. This reflects on what was just said, which was that we have seen, we have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thus, he represents the one whom God has brought about such redemption. But what do we see? We see that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, this should cause us to reflect on Genesis 1. There we find that we are made in the image of God. Here, however, Christ is the image. He is the one by whom we are able to see this invisible God. John makes the same point by saying, The Word became flesh. That which was invisible has now been made known and is visible, and that is through Jesus Christ. We then see that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. This might remind some of us of wisdom found in Proverbs 8, where wisdom is stated as being the first created thing before all else. This, however, has a different connotation, and this is what I was talking about earlier. Wisdom, in Jewish literature during the time, and in Hebrew, um, is always considered created. But here we find Christ before creation, which is what we find in the term firstborn is used, which not only has a literal sense, but also a medical for, metaphorical sense of being preeminent. We see this especially when Israel is called firstborn among all the nations. They weren't the first nation, but they were preeminent above all other nations because they belonged to God. So what we see here when it says firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was the first created being. It means that he was before all of creation. Thus, in this verse, we find Christ's relation to God, that he is the image. But we also find Christ's relation to the world being preeminent to creation. And in this way, as one commentator Dunn says, it bridges the gulf between creator and creation, which is what we'd expect of Jesus. He allows us to go to the creator. But verse 16, let's continue. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now some might wonder if firstborn of all creation really means that he is preeminent above creation, like I was saying. Well, now we find it to be the case. For we notice by him all things were created. Thus, by him indicates that he was actively involved in the creation. He, therefore, cannot be an act of creation himself because he's the one who created all of creation. We notice Paul specifically mentions heaven, earth, visible, and invisible. These four terms represent both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. This ultimately reflected the statement of all things. By saying it this way, it leaves no stone unturned which was not first brought forth by Christ as the Godhead. Yet we also find a further statement with four other terms when he says, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. What does this mean? Well, the likeliest understanding is that these represent spiritual beings. Whether or not each one represents a specific spiritual being um, is unknown to us. 
But the fact that they are spiritual beings represents Christ's supremacy over all spiritual beings, whether good or evil. And we'll get into that in a bit. It is then reiterated that all things were created through and for him. But notice the difference. Through him represents the fact that Christ is actively involved in the origins of the created order. He is there from the beginning, preeminent from creation. However, it goes further in saying that the purpose of creation is him. He's the reason, so to speak, for the creation of the cosmos. Um, Thus, Christ is shown his supremacy in all things, above and beyond all the created order. Now, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 17 adds a few more concepts to Christ's preeminence. First, it recognizes what we have seen previously. That Christ is before all things indicates just that. He is greater and before the created order. Yet it goes further than this. For we also find that in him all things hold together. Now what does that mean? It recognizes that being before all of creation, creation itself stands by Christ. Because he is the one who created it, he is also the one who sustains it. And keeps it. Thus, the role of Christ does not only end in what we find in redemption, but he actively sustains that which he has made from the beginning. We'll get more into that too. Verse 18. Now, as I said, this is kind of the main point of these verses. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There is some debate about the previous verse in this one, whether they are part of the hymn originally, um, added as another strophe or not a strophe at all. Regardless, from a Jewish perspective, this verse in particular makes perfect sense chiastically, as I said earlier. As a chiasm has its focus right in the middle, this verse is right in the middle. As such, this verse may well, very well be the focus, so to speak, of the hymn or perhaps of what Paul is trying to convey. So, What else is said about Christ in this? He is the head of the body, the church. This says a great deal about two things. The first is that Christ is the Lord of his people. He is the one who has all the authority in his body, the church. The concept of body is not meant to cause reflection on a head needing the body for sustenance, obviously, but instead to show the authority of the head over the rest of the body. But it is not only in regards to the church, but also in regards to the new creation, which is brought forth in his death and resurrection. This is seen when, again, the word firstborn is brought forward as it was previously. Then he was the firstborn of all creation. Now he is recognized as the firstborn from the dead. Thus, he is the first of the new creation, just as he was for the old creation, so to speak. And that is the point. For Paul ends with the verse, in everything he might be preeminent. Thus, if the new creation were to be ushered in any other way, Christ would no longer be preeminent above all things. Yet he is preeminent. For just as the rest of creation was brought by and through and for him, so the new creation is by, through, and for him first and foremost. Now verse 19. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. At this point we come to a slight variation in the text. Uh, The Greek does not specifically state all the fullness of God, but instead simply says all the fullness. So the question most scholars ask is, what does all the fullness mean? Ultimately, most scholars conclude that all the fullness recognizes God as the one who possesses or gives all the fullness. So the translation is not wrong, as it accurately describes what is happening for Christ to possess all the fullness. It also says something of Christ himself. If all the fullness of God were pleased to dwell in him, then that would make further him to be supreme over all else. This means that we would not need anything else in order to find the fullness of God, for it would be inhabited in his Son. Thus, the fullness of God represents the supremacy of Christ over all things, and further, as another commentator says, Moo points out, where all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found. It's in Christ. And the final verse, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now we come to an interesting conclusion of the hymn. If we notice previously, the text specifically states how it is by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ all the world has been created. Now, however, we find that there is need for reconciliation with these very things. This indicates that something has happened within the world, both the natural and the supernatural, that has caused a disruption of the original intention of the created order. Yet we find that the reconciliation is not done by the world. Despite the world being at odds with its creator, it is not the world which seeks to find a way to reconcile itself to Christ or to God, but the other way around. He is the one who reconciles all things to himself. He is the one who has acted and has accomplished and done. Should anyone wonder what all things represents? The hymn again says, whether on earth or in heaven. Thus, whether natural or supernatural, whether visible or invisible, it is Christ who has brought the reconciliation. Ultimately, this reconciliation was brought through the blood of his cross. He has made peace with the corrupted cosmos, whether visible or invisible, by the blood he has shed. In this way, Christ again is in all in all when it comes to all things. He has done what he has set out to do, which is bring forth redemption, and ultimately it reminds us that the universe, while seemingly without a sovereign, truly does have a sovereign in Christ, who is bringing forth his restoration through his blood. All right, main point. The main point of these verses are to provide us with a hymn concerning Christ. The hymn represents a style reminiscent of Jewish and Greek literature of the time in which wisdom, or the logos, are considered the firstborn of all creation. However, in the hymn, we find it goes beyond even what we find in the wisdom and logos literature, for in the case of Christ, he is preeminent, above all, before all, the created order, whether visible or invisible. Thus, the supremacy of Christ is on display for all of us who see it in these verses. All right. So when it comes to application points this week, I had a hard time. And the reason why I had a hard time is because I, find, I have found this hymn so wonderful. I was very close to just saying, okay, guys, we're done, <laughs> after we go over the verses. 
Because these verses are just so spectacular to me. Um, when it talks about Christ in this way. Did I write end something? Yes, I did end up writing something. So we're going to have to stay a little bit longer. I'm sorry. Um, and there are a few points that I did want to just point out just so we have some clarification. And the first is with natural and supernatural. In today's text, we see something rather interesting, and that is a further reflection between the natural world and the supernatural world. And we saw that actually last week as well, but it gets a little bit more defined here. And we see it when Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now I find it interesting because many times in our lives uh, we can become rather platonic, and I know that you guys are tired of hearing about Plato, but I'm going to keep telling you. We're very platonic. Um, And what I mean is, is that there's a sense in which the physical realm is less than or not as important as the spiritual realm. And we focus greatly on souls, for example, but not so much on the body. Uh, We focus on things such as heart or being, but not so much on the mind. And why is it that we have such this dichotomy? Well, again, there tends to be a bit of Neoplatonism within our blood. And what was one of the core tenets of Neoplatonism? Well, one of them was that the physical realm is bad and the spiritual realm is good. And it came from the idea of Plato's allegory about the cave, where Plato described people sitting in chairs in a cave. And I want you to picture this in your mind. And they're sitting in this cave. And all that they could see is this wall before them. Now a fire was lit behind them. And people and beings would walk across the fire so that there would be shadows on the wall. And the people sitting in the chairs, that's all that they could see were the shadows. So they thought the shadows were what was real. But in reality, what was real was not the shadows, but the fire and that which passed in front of the fire. Thus for Plato, the, prob- the problem was that those sitting in, the f- in there, the forms on the wall were not true forms And that, in his mind, was the physical world. And in order to see what was true, one would need to escape the physical world, the cave, the chairs, and see what was real, which was the spiritual. The physical, then, was bad, while the spiritual was good. Now, this can almost sound like a form of Christian thought, can it? You can almost see that. But I'm going to say it's it's not. In fact, what we find in today's text actually argues against that idea. Because in today's text, we find that all things were created by, through, and for Christ. Thus, the physical is not bad or worse than the spiritual. Instead, both are good through Christ and have a purpose. Likewise, we must never assume that the spiritual is always better either. Consider what it also says in the verses above, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In the second temple period, so the time that Paul was writing, That terminology referred to spiritual beings, it's true. But usually, they were beings who were against God. Thus, the devil and his demons. Thus, the spiritual is not always good. In fact, there are spiritual elements which are, in fact, bad. This also makes me think of something else about these thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. As said, this represents dark spirits. Now, does that mean that these things are only supernatural? Well, we should be careful to say that. The simple truth is, elements of spiritual darkness can make itself known in the natural world around us. For example, we can think of pagan religions, 
like those in far-off places in Africa or South America, where witch doctors use supernatural forces to curse others. Or if we consider oppressive regimes which exist and have existed in the world, these can be, if not overtly demonic, or at least influenced by these thrones, these dominions, these rulers, and these authorities. But this is where we always want to be careful when it comes to matters of darkness. Simply put, we can't just assume that thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities are over every dark circumstance that happens. Human beings, unfortunately, are capable of creating evil in their own right, for their hearts are not of God, as we read in today's psalm. But neither do we want to demythologize what is being said here about the spiritual forces. Malevolent spiritual beings do exist and exert their presence and strength in the world. And we should be aware of their existence and recognize that as we fight against darkness, it may include some kind of spiritual warfare in the process. But it doesn't always mean that's the case, so we can't just assume. So what can we make concerning this clear and present focus on the spiritual and the physical, this natural and supernatural experience we see in the text? Ultimately, I think it comes down to the very first verse. Christ is the image of the invisible God. In the end, we find in Christ that the physical and the spiritual matter, that Christ is the physical truth of a spiritual truth as well, which is that God exists and in his fullness dwells in Christ. Yet we also recognize that darkness has touched not only the physical realm, but also the spiritual realm. And in this, both are in need of redemption. And that is the key, is that Christ has come, has begun the restoration within both And we are evidence of the truth of this. For we are physical and spiritual beings. And we are being made new day by day by day if we are in Christ. And we even partake in the restoration once we are in Christ. For as we read in Romans that the world is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Who are they? Who are the sons of God? Well, the text in Romans 8 says that we are if we are in Christ. And this leads to the next point. And that point is Jesus himself. Did you notice that there is a lot, a lot of information concerning Christ in these verses? In fact, he is the focus of these verses. Christ in his preeminence, in his power, in his sovereignty. We see Christ in all things. For he is the Messiah, the Lord of all things. Let's consider what that means. First, it reminds us that our origins are found in Christ. He who is God, who was the creator, the first cause of all things. When it comes to humanity, we bear his image as he is the image of the unseen God. Thus, when we praise Christ for being before all things and that all things are created by him, we reflect on the reality that he is the one who is preeminent above all creation. Praise God. 
Consider that too. In today's text, not only does he create all things, but he is also the one who sustains all of creation. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that the water you drink doesn't just turn to gasoline when you take a sip? Why is it that the molecules and the atoms, all things in nature and above nature, why do they persist in doing what they're supposed to do? It is because of God. It's because of Christ. He not only created them, but he sustains them by their power. That makes every blade of grass, every grain of sand, a reminder of the power and the glory of God. But that's not all. For what does it mean for the supernatural forces of darkness? What does it mean for the natural forces of darkness? What does it mean for darkness itself and all that it entails in sin and in the evil we find around us? Well, it means Christ is above them. He is more powerful than them. Though they have authority, the authority of Christ is even greater than theirs is. A good way to describe it is a quote I once heard about Adam and that, Christ is more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. This is a good thing. It is a glorious thing. For us to realize here and now the supremacy of Christ is above all things, including all the forces of darkness we encounter, whether from within, from without, natural or supernatural. We find the supremacy of Christ, of how Christ is the firstborn and therefore preeminent, when the text describes him as the reconciler. The one who has made peace through his blood on the cross. He is able to do this because he is greater than that which first caused us to be against God to begin with. And that is sin. But his supremacy does not end there. It goes further in recognizing him as the firstborn of the dead. In this there are two realities. The first is that he was the first to rise from the dead. From death to life. But it goes further. And that is how he is the one who has conquered death. Death itself cannot hold Jesus Christ. For he has defeated the grave. Now I think we can all see the ramifications this has for each of us. If we remember the preeminence of Christ. It should cause within us great rejoicing and praise. Over all that God has accomplished. Through Christ in the natural and even the supernatural world. However, it goes even further than this. For consider what more is said about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. What does this then mean for each of us who are in Christ? It means a great many things. Significantly, it means that we are used by God as reconcilers to this dark world. We do this not on our own might, but because we are in Christ who is the one who reconciles. This means we are used by God to reconcile this world to himself. How is this done through us? When we bear good fruit, when we increase in the knowledge, the wisdom, and the understanding of God. It is done when we receive his great and glorious might. And when we live in thankfulness, knowing what he has done for us through the cross And knowing that in great joy. When we change the world through our actions for the glory of God. 
By being individuals who seek the glory of God, not in some of our lives, but all of our lives. Being prophets in our culture and society around us and to each other. But it goes further. You think it would be done, but no. For if Christ is the firstborn of the dead, what does that mean for each of us? It means that we too will rise. We too will defeat death. Not because we are so strong to save ourselves, but because we are in Christ. And if he is the head, the firstborn, then that means we who are the body will defeat death because he has done it already. Let me ask you, how glorious and wonderful is our God? How perfect is our Savior, Jesus Christ? How wonderful is the faith which ties all of these things together under his lordship so that nothing in all the universe can be outside of him? It is simply too magnificent. It makes me think of the psalmist and how they perfectly elaborated on this amazing God and his ways in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And yet... Consider the reality that we can begin to attain it. Not by our own hand or strength or mind, but by Christ. What more can I say about all of this other than keep your focus on Christ? So many times in the world, this world wants us to be led astray. So many times it tries to tell us, you need this You need that, you need more of this, you need more of that. I say, give me Christ. Give me more of Christ. Nothing in all the world compares with the image of the invisible God, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, who has redeemed us, by whom all things have been made, and not only made, but sustained by his hand. We can keep going and going with how wonderful Christ is. Give me more of this. Don't give me anything less than the glorious Son of God who has redeemed us. And in redeeming us, allow us to partake of his glory. Praise his name. Praise this God who has made himself known through his Son. Glorify him. Live for him. Keep your eyes on him. For all the things the world tells us we need, the truth is all we really need is Jesus Christ. The firstborn, the preeminent one, for whom all things were made. He is ours and we are his. And nothing in all the world could separate us from the head of this body, the church, if we are in Christ. Um, Now at this point, I'd like to ask, what have you seen about the gospel in these verses? Um, you're going to see every single one of these underlined. Every single one of these is going to be underlined today. And you think, okay, what, what do you mean? Origins. What did talk about today with origins? Who is the firstborn of all creation and who created all things? Jesus. Jesus. The gospel includes origins that all things were created by God for his glory and that we see this through Jesus Christ who has come and who has been the image of this invisible God for so long we can now see. But it goes on further. 
Um, tell me, did it talk at all about the fall? Did it talk at all about um, sin in these verses today? Yeah, it did, didn't it? How Christ reconciles us by his blood. And how sin no longer has hold over us. That even the authorities, the dominions, all of these powerful entities, these spiritual entities, guess what? They don't have any authority over us either. Because Christ has more authority than they do. And if we are the church and we are the body of Christ, we're under his authority and no one can touch us. Which leads to the next point. Was there redemption in these verses? We just kind of hit on it, didn't we? That Christ has brought redemption through the blood of his cross. That is how redemption occurs. It's not by your hand. It's not by my hand. It is by what Christ has done. He is the one who has brought forth the redemption. And he has done it single-handedly. He didn't even need us to do it. In fact, we're the ones who put him on the cross to begin with. And yet, what does he do despite that? He shows us so much love. So much grace, so much mercy that he takes us and he says, you're mine if you have faith in me and if you repent of your sins. And that's the reality, that if we have faith in Christ, it will be made evident by the fact that we live for Christ. And where does that lead, though? Did it talk about where it goes? Some of you are like, eh, maybe. I'm going to say, yeah, it did. Um, Because it did when it said, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Um, You see, there's two places that eternity will lead. It'll either lead to judgment for our sins, or it'll lead to glorification where we are with God forever and ever in a glorious kingdom where we experience the love of God for forevermore. Now, in today's text, we learn that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. That means that if we are in Christ and he is the head of the church, then that means that we too will live just as he lives. So I encourage all of you. You know, every week we go through the gospel of Christ. Every week. And I've tried to encourage everybody to, okay, think, where do you see Jesus today in this text? The reason why I say that we can see Jesus in any text is because he's clearly always there. Whether we're talking about origins, whether we're talking about sin in the fall, whether we're talking about redemption or glorification, Christ is always there. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on him and follow him all the rest of your lives. Just as the hymn taught us. Let us pray. Father, We thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the one who did all of this, who created us, who sustains us. And if we are in him, then we are promised eternal life through him. Lord, let us not take our eyes off of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us focused on what he has done so that we will not become heady, that we would not glorify in self, but we would say the same thing as the Apostle Paul. It's all about Jesus. It's all for his glory.
We thank you, Lord, for what you have done again through him. And we ask that you would keep our eyes focused on him. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.